we concentrated almost entirely on just some of the messianic prophecies or the statements that Isaiah made of a Messiah to come. And we noted that, uh, that some of these prophecies were so exact that you could actually put them at the conclusion of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as something written after the event. And yet we nailed down that when we speak of Isaiah that we can actually prove the material was written uh, in that period of 8th century B.C. And we've already discussed in some detail for two lessons all the various uh, ways that we date uh, the individual books of the Old Testament. So we've looked at Isaiah from the standpoint of the dating of the book and how we go about tracing it back and how we can determine whether or not we have what was initially written. And then last week we looked at uh, the prophecies that are some of them, I should say, that spoke about Jesus in the New Testament. And what I'd like to do tonight with Isaiah, because we're going to and, and, and deal with him in the same way that we would the other prophets, is, is look at him from the standpoint of just why do we accept Isaiah as a prophet or a spokesman from God? And, and the same arguments that would apply to Isaiah would apply to the other prophets. We're going to use Isaiah, but the same ones would apply to all. Just as today, there are many people that claim to be a spokesman for God. In other words, you can go uh, all over the world, and there are individuals who make the claim that they are prophets of God. Uh, all through history, that's been the case. Uh, there's never been a time in recorded history but that there are some people that have made this claim that they are spokesmen for God. And that probably has done more than anything to cause confusion uh, among religion as we strive to find out what is truth. I mean, after all, if we, if we have come to believe in God uh, as a result of examining the evidence, uh, the type of evidence we talked somewhat about uh, last week and other lessons, and so we've come to believe in a creator. And it makes sense to us that if there is a creator, that he would communicate uh, with us, that he would uh, give us some information about how he would have us to do on this earth, uh, about why we're in this situation, uh, that it would help us to understand some of the things that, that we just seemingly uh, cannot understand in and of our own thinking. In other words, that uh, uh, we can come to grips with the fact that there is a creator, but then on the other hand, why is there death? Why is there sickness? Why do uh, innocent people suffer? Uh, is there any purpose to life? Or is life just simply an at, at random proposition that's a, that's a matter, matter of chance? Is there, is there any real meaning in life other than just simply making a living and, and then going to the grave? So it, it, it seems logical to our minds that if we have been created that there would be some communication uh, to us conveying to us what is right and wrong and, and something of the meaning of life. Well, all through the centuries, there have been those individuals uh, that have claimed to be spokesmen for God and, and to communicate uh, God's will to man. Well, then, when you and I, as, 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 as believers in, in the Bible, those of us who believe in it, what gives us the right? Why do we say that, yes, I believe Isaiah was a prophet of God. I believe that Moses was a prophet of God. I believe that Samuel uh, was a prophet. Uh, I believe that uh, the Holy Spirit spoke through David. I believe the apostles were inspired. And then turn around and say that, uh, that 
I do not believe that Buddha, that God spoke to him. And uh, I do not believe in the Vedas. I do not believe in the Koran. I do not believe in the Book of Mormon. Uh, I do not believe in the, the other religions of the world and all. Uh, to say this comes across as pretty haughty. Uh, I mean, that, uh, that this is. Well, the first thing we might point out that, that when we speak of Isaiah as a prophet, if he is not, uh, none of us here have any stake in being biased or prejudiced. Uh, for example, Isaiah is not an American. Uh, Isaiah was a Jew who lived in the Mideast um, some 2,700 years ago. And so I have no particular reason for wanting to believe that a Jew who lived 2,700 years ago in the Mideast and spoke the Hebrew language was a prophet of God. In other words, that let's don't make the mistake of thinking of Christianity uh, as an American type thing or Judaism as an American type thing. It's not. Uh, Isaiah was believed in and reverenced and respected as a prophet of God before anybody in that part of the world even knew that America existed. And so we, we want to examine and, and just see why is it, I mean, if, that we would accept him and Moses and Elijah and these others in here uh, as prophets of God and, and not accept many who claim. Now, hold your place there in Isaiah and flip over to Jeremiah, okay, from Isaiah over to Jeremiah 23. And I just want to give you an example that all through the history of Israel, that there were those individuals who claimed to be prophets of God, okay? Isaiah 23 and beginning with verse 9. And we're going to read uh, on down to the, the end of that chapter. Uh, let's see. Uh, Steve, would you read uh, uh, verses, uh, or Barbara, read verses 9 through 15. And see, Steve, would you... Uh, take it on through verse 24, 16 through 24. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets all my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whose wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. For because of a curse the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil, and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slip, slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall in them. For I will bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. And I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria, they prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. Also, I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers, so that no one, <clears throat> no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me, and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make their drink the water of gall. For all the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. Okay, Steve with verse 16. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what <clears throat> the prophets are prophesying to you. <clears throat> they fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep, keep saying to those who despise me, The Lord says, You will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, No harm will come to you. But which of you has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand it clearly. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to, to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways, from their evil deeds. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and earth, declares the Lord? Okay, let's look at what he said now. In Jeremiah's day, you can see that Jeremiah, one that you and I accept as a prophet of God, I believe he was a prophet of God, was actually in the minority. Uh, that uh, the vast majority that were claiming to be prophets of God, Jeremiah says they were not. Well, this is true all through the history of Israel. There's never a time but that the man that we have in here and believe is a prophet of God was in the minority. Uh, those that were claiming, and literally notice the statement there, that these people claim to have visions from God and they claim to speak from God. And so all the time Jeremiah is teaching, there are others out there claiming that they are prophets of God. Well, in the same way today, there, there are other books that claim that they're inspired and, that, and, and would supersede this one here. And so the big question is, why do we accept Isaiah and these prophets in here and at the same time reject others? All right, what I'd like to do is note some characteristics of the prophets uh, in the Bible that are absolutely unique to them. And what I mean is, is unique. Uh, these are characteristics that simply are not, are, do not are the prophets that claim to be inspired and are not here simply do not have these characteristics. And yet we find it consistent within all the prophets of the Bible. First of all, these people have a very high sense of right and wrong. Okay, that's the first characteristic that everybody that's ever read the Bible, I don't care what your background, whether you're black or white or, or whatever, everybody that's ever read the Bible or heard the Bible taught has been impressed for this very high sense of right and wrong. Okay, now, we, if we are made in the image of God, we would expect that we would identify with right and wrong when we hear it. I mean, if we, if we are in God's image, the Bible makes this claim. Uh, for example, in Romans 2, 14 through 16, Paul said that the Gentile who did not have the law of his own nature and through his own conscience came to ascertain the things of the law so that there were Gentiles who never read a word in the law of Moses that actually had come through their own experience with life and their own thinking process to realize that those moral principles were right and they would work. Well, if those moral principles are true and they do work, then we would expect 
this to be the case. For example, if, if a, a scientist in America uncovers some truth in the physical realm, and a scientist in Russia or China or Germany is studying the, the same thing, if what he has here is true, you would expect the others to come to the same conclusion. And that's what we have. So the scientist in China, the scientist in Russia, the scientist in America, all believe the first and second law of thermodynamics, for example. All of them believe it. They all believe in the law of gravity. Uh, they all believe that H2O is water. And H2O2 is hydrogen peroxide. And so those are truths, and, and so therefore they found them. Well, if what Moses puts forth and these prophets put forth is really from God, we would expect people through their experience in life to have reached a point where they can actually see and identify inwardly that those points are right. All right, here is something that has set the prophets of the Bible and Isaiah being one, apart from others. As people have read these books, they have found inner identification with those things that are called right. For example, all of them condemn lying and, and expound on the advantages of telling the truth. But they don't just condemn lying and say, tell the truth. The prophets do something. They go beyond that. They, they say, tell the truth, even if the truth is something that will hurt you. Now, to show you the difference in that, uh, in the United States, in our political system, and in all governments, we all believe in telling the truth as long as the truth is to your advantage. I don't know of any government, and that includes the United States, that is real big on telling the truth when the truth steps on your toes. And, and there's never been a people anywhere on the earth that's been real big on telling the truth when the truth steps on your toes. Uh, all of us find it easy to tell the truth when the truth is to your advantage. It, it's when the truth doesn't make you look good or it steps on your toes or it hurts you in some way that it's hard, it's hard to deal with. All right? A unique characteristic in these people is they have such a love and downright zeal for truth that they didn't worry about what anybody else thought of them or the message. It was just a matter of what is the truth, what is right, what is wrong. And so therefore, uh, if even though rich people might control all the money, we would find them condemning the rich and exalting the poor and demanding that the rich share with the poor. If the king said something that was wrong, these prophets condemned him. Uh, David committed adultery, and Nathan rebuked him to his face. Sometimes the prophets lost their life because they rebuked kings. Uh, John the Baptist rebuked Herod and had his head cut off in the process. He said, you don't have any right to live with this woman as, as your wife, and got his head cut off in the process. So one characteristic of, of these is that they had this high sense of right and wrong, and there was no compromise. There was no favoritism whatsoever, that it, it really didn't matter how the chips fell. It just simply went out. To show you how unusual this is, the, the other night, Steve and I, some of you may have seen it too. Did any of you see the interview that Ted Koppel had with Nelson Mandela on TV the other night? It, it was real interesting. Now, I'm not uh, advocating Nelson Mandela on every point. I, I disagree with him on some things, agree with him on others. But Ted Koppel, who's not easily impressed, was very impressed with one thing about the man. That when he was asked questions, he told exactly what he believed, even though sometimes what he believed was not what the politicians in this country wanted to hear. 
he knows that he wants our Congress to vote in a certain way about sanctions on South Africa. And he knows the answers that they want to hear. Uh, they want to hear him denounce Marxism. They want to hear him break off with Fidel Castro. They want to hear him denounce uh, Yasser Arafat. And yet, in, in no, no political language whatsoever, he just plainly told exactly what he believed to the displeasure of many in, in this country. And Coppell even asked him, do you realize what you're doing? That a lot of people in this country are going to be turned off. And he made it very clear that, that, that he, didn't, he didn't bother him, that he just, that's what he believed and it would be dishonest otherwise. Well, that was unique to hear somebody because we're not used to this. We're, we're used to politicians running for office and telling us what we like to hear, whether or not they believe it, in order to get elected. And so it's, it was very unusual. Well, I'm saying just as that was so unusual, and even Koppel commented on it, that you just don't run into that very often. You just don't. He, obviously, he's going to have to learn the democratic process, you know, <laughs> to, uh, in that area. But the point is, all the prophets were that way, all of them. And then think about Moses and how many times the majority of the people wanted to tire and feather him. Think about Samuel. And think about all the prophets, okay? So they have this sense of rightness. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to cheat. It's wrong to be unfair. It's wrong to be dishonest. It's wrong to murder. It's wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to covet something that belongs to uh, somebody else. It's wrong to mistreat anybody, even an animal. You know, and that was their, that uh, you ought to love your neighbor. You ought to overcome evil with good. This was, uh, this was the message that went out, no matter what anybody thought about it or what the position of the individual. And people that were contrary to that, they looked them right in the face and said, you know, that's wrong. You know, that you're in, you're in sin on that point. Well, notice in this Jeremiah 23 that uh, in verse 16, we get a little bit on the, the prophets there. In verse 16, he says, Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying. They fill you with false hopes. Okay? What they were doing, Jeremiah was saying that because of the way you're living, there's going to be a judgment on the land. And these people were telling them, you go, you're God's people, you know. The temple is in the city. God will never destroy this place. Well, it was good business. The, those prophets lived high on the hog, and they were well supported. Okay? So I'm saying a unique characteristic of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses and all these prophets was this high sense of right and wrong. They didn't care whose toes they stepped on. Uh, they recognized that they were sinners themselves. They have this extremely high, no compromising sense of right and wrong. And God's law in their mind was absolutely perfect. There could be no compromise. All right, that in itself set them, sets them apart as kind of a unique people. There's just simply not very many people, so far as history is concerned, <clears throat> There's not very many people that have lived on this earth that have had the attitude that they wanted to do what was right, no matter what the cost. And, and it didn't matter what the position of the person that was talking to. You know yourself that when you're in conversation with somebody and, and they're a friend and, and they're saying, don't you think so-and-so, you know, and you're sitting there, you don't think so-and-so, that it's very difficult to just right there say, no, I don't believe that. Or you're in this conversation in the South, and, and this, this, this fellow white guy who's been real buddy-buddy, and he likes you, and you like him, and, and then all of a sudden he makes some derogatory statement uh, about the black person, and, 
and you find yourself, you say, do I let that go? Or do I look it right in the face and say, listen, I believe that's wrong. Uh, you know, I believe that we're absolutely 100% equal and that nobody's better than anybody else. That's hard to do. And, and so even a lot of, of people who would believe that would not have what we would call the backbone to look him right in the face and say that. You know, we may go off and say it to somebody else, but we may not look him right in the face. Well, I'm saying these guys did. They looked people right in the face, and they told them in terms of this extremely high standard of right and wrong. And that's why that through the centuries, as people have read this book, they have found inner identification. They come across as people who are just concerned about what is right above anything and everything else. So that's one characteristic that kind of sets them apart. Now, hold your place there and flip up here to uh, Jesus in Matthew. And notice how that uh, he alludes to this as he's talking to his, his own disciples. Matthew 5 and verse 10. Okay, uh, Mark, would you read verses uh, 10 through 12, please? Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Okay. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, look at verse 10. Persecuted because of righteousness. Forget about that mysteriousness of righteousness for saying what is right, doing what is right. And, and so he's telling them that all through the centuries, God's prophets have stood for what is right. No matter what the majority thought about it, no matter what the position, it didn't matter whether they was rich or poor, educated, they didn't count sides. It's uh, sort of like, again, go back to our uh, politicians, they had this vote on the flag issue. And what, what are all the politicians doing before they vote? They're counting heads in the, in the, you know, to find out. And how is this going to affect me in the next election? Uh, on abortion, we've seen all kinds of people reverse their position because they thought if they didn't, they might lose the, lose the election. And so I'm saying that this is even good. with people that we consider decent and good do that. And I'm saying that before we look down on them too much, that sometimes that, you know, we're a little wishy-washy ourselves. That these people had a, a sense of righteousness, a sense of wanting to do what was right, where they was willing to be persecuted because of it. Okay? Now there's a lot of people even willing to do what was right to the extent they'll even look somebody in the face, but then when you get this get into the area of standing up for what is right, even though it may cause you to be looked down on or persecuted. Man, we really draw the line at that point. Persecution will draw the line between those that believe something and feel compelled beyond any doubt. And so Jesus talks to his own disciples and says, if you stand up for what is right, I'm telling you in advance you're going to be persecuted. But you're in good company. God's prophets stood up for what was right, and they were persecuted. And so a unique characteristic then is standing up for what is right to the extent that it would bring persecution. And I suggest to you that no matter where you live, in the United States, not just in China, like Lee is familiar with what happened in Beijing and the, and the slaughter of, of young students and all last year, but I suggest to you that, that not just in China, 
But in the United States or Germany or Africa or any place, if you have an attitude that you are going to stand up for what is right, no matter what, there's going to be consequences. I don't know anywhere that you can have that kind of attitude where you're going to stand up for what is right. In our society, for example, uh, if, you, if you believe that, uh, that uh, homosexuality is a perversion of your sexuality as you're created by God, if you, if you believe that adultery is, is wrong, if you believe that any number of things are wrong that are accepted in our society, then you're going to have problems when you stand up very strongly on those things. And so these guys did, and that is one of the extremely, and I'm saying this is no little evidence of the uniqueness, that, it, it, that anybody that believes in something that is right so strong that they're willing to stand up is in very elite company. Very, very few people have been willing to do that through the centuries. All right, now, these guys not only do it, but they all have the same sense of rightness. In other words, Moses doesn't have one sense of rightness, and Isaiah another sense, and Jesus another sense. They all have the same sense of rightness, and this sense of rightness they have is one that we find ourselves inwardly identifying with. In other words, that uh, even if I were a thief, I believe I would have no problem understanding why stealing is wrong. I mean, after all, I don't want somebody taking something from me so I can understand why the other fellow wouldn't want something taken from him. Even if I am a liar, I have no problem believing that lying is wrong. I don't like people lying about me. Therefore, I can perceive that other people don't like people lying about them. Uh, I have no problem understanding that murder is wrong or, or anything of that nature because all I have to do is say, how, how would I want somebody doing that to me? If the answer is no, then I don't have any problem perceiving it as, as it applies to somebody else. So the prophets then give us a sense of rightness that inward we identify with to the extent that we're willing to, to tell anybody. Sit down and read from Moses all the way through the things they said were right and the things they said were wrong, and then ask yourself the question, where is my inner identification? Even if it steps on my toes, do I find myself agreeing with it or do I find myself saying that it's wrong? Look at their character and then try to answer the question, what motivation could they possibly have? What could be strong enough motivation to get them to stand up for what was right, even to the point of going to their death? Okay? So one sense there. Now, wanting what was right above everything else, not caring what anybody thought about it, not trying to win a popularity contest. Uh, uh, this was a characteristic. All right, now, another unique characteristic of all the prophets, and this includes Isaiah, is salary or money was not number one to them. Okay, and this is uh, unusual. The, we, we think about religion as being some sort of a special type thing. Uh, most religious people through the century have been just about as concerned on salary matters as other people are concerned. And, and, it's, and there have been a multitude of compromises with what people actually believe because of their salary and the, and the actual support. All right, turn over to Matthew 9, uh, Luke 9, Luke 9, verses 57 and 58. And this is just an example of a characteristic that was true of all the prophets, Jesus himself, and the apostles. Luke 9, 57 and 58. Okay, Brian, would you read that, please? Luke 7, 58. Uh-huh. 
As they were walking along the road, the man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Okay. Jesus offered no physical financial rewards to anybody. And as he spoke and as he taught, Jesus himself lived in poverty. I mean, if, if you were uh, looking to get wealthy through your teaching, or if you were looking to be well-supported and all, uh, Jesus would have left you with some problems, uh, that he, he, was, he was not a wealthy person. He says, before take this into consideration, I don't have a whole lot physically. You need to count the cost. As we look at the prophets and the apostles, we find poor ones, we find wealthy ones. We find those in between. But the point is that money was not the factor where right and wrong was concerned. Uh, Paul said that I know what it is to have a lot. I know what it is not to have much. I've learned to be content in whatever state I find myself. At one time when Paul had a lot, he wasn't standing for what he stood for because of that. It just so happened that's what he believed was right, and it got him a pretty prestigious position. When he changed his position because of his love for what is right, it dropped him material-wise so far as this world was concerned. But he went ahead and he took the drop and stood for what he believed was right. Okay, With all of these prophets, whether it's Abraham or Moses or whatever, we find some wealthy ones and we find some poor ones and we find some in between. But the point is that wealth or money has nothing to do with the stand that they take that they take their stand based on what they believe is right, regardless of the financial rewards. All right? And as we look at the prophets in the Old Testament that are identified as false prophets, invariably they're always concerned about salary. And sometimes uh, that the prophets of God are reminded that you know things could be a lot different with you. Uh, remember uh, Balaam and uh, Balak and how that he, the, the bribery that was attempted to get him to prophesy in a certain way, and finally he succumbed to it. I mean, after a while, he finally succumbed to it. And so that money is a factor uh, today uh, that sometimes the, the worst way uh, to come to, a, to find all the facts pertaining to a particular truth that you're looking for is maybe to go to professional ministry. All the professional ministry has one thing in common, and that is that they are supported financially by a particular group. Now, how, what percentage of them like and love what is right to the extent that no matter what the group thinks that support them, they're going to stand up for what is right loud and clear. And I suggest to you that if you, if you get involved with full-time ministers, that although most might like and believe in what is right, this individual who is willing to stand up for exactly what he believes is right, no matter what the cost, I mean absolutely no matter what the cost, no matter what anybody else thinks about it, no, is very, very few. There's not, not very few that will stand. You don't preach for the biggest churches by having just a simply a love for right to the extent that you won't compromise. And I'm saying that, that we have our frailty, and I'm saying that these people were very special individuals, and they did stand up for what is right, no matter the consequence. All right, Isaiah is a good example. We're looking at Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied during the reign of four kings. Okay, let's look at Isaiah 1.
Isaiah 1 and verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah the son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Okay? Now, Uzziah was in his last year when Isaiah became prophet. Jotham was a king who believed in God but had some weaknesses that caused the problem for Israel. But So he was, we would call him like a... a a, a member of the church who believes in what is right but doesn't always have the backbone to stand up for it. Okay, that's Jotham. Ahaz was an ungodly reprobate. Uh, he offered his own son as a sacrifice to a pagan idol. Uh, he rejected God, made it clear that he had more respect for the gods of Assyria. Hezekiah was a righteous man, a deeply committed righteous man. Okay, as we pursue Isaiah... Preaching under Jotham, preaching under Ahaz, preaching under Hezekiah. His message doesn't change. It's the same message. Uh, he re, he'll rebuke Jotham when Jotham needs to be rebuked. He'll compliment him when he needs to be complimented. He constantly is rebuking Ahab. Here's Ahaz the king. He's constantly rebuking Ahaz. He's constantly challenging him. He's constantly pointing out that he's in the wrong. With Hezekiah, he's constantly supporting Hezekiah. But the message is the same. But the point is, Isaiah was in the high court. He's an educated man. All the evidence we have is that he was of a priestly background, a very highly educated individual. He traveled in high circles. But the point is, who is king does not influence Isaiah in what he says. He has the same high sense of rightness. And it doesn't matter whether Ahaz, the reprobate, is on the scene or Hezekiah, the righteous man they get exactly the same message from Hezekiah. And again, I suggest to you, that's, that's an unusual trait. Uh, it's, it's easy to expouse on what you believe is right if the person that's over you also believes it's right. It's extremely difficult if the person over you doesn't agree with you for you to go ahead and still expouse on what you believe is right. And so Hezekiah, Isaiah and the other prophets were the same way. It didn't matter how whether the king was righteous or unrighteous, they got the same message. And, and they didn't think in terms of the consequences themselves. Salary was never a motivating influence for these people. All right, so let's look now at what we've said so far as unique characteristics. All these prophets have this high sense of right and wrong, okay, with no compromise. They all have this sense that that the chips will fall where they may, that it, it really doesn't matter. The most important thing is not what you think about them, but what is right. They, every last one, uh, have this sense. We can all, you know, learn, learn something from them. They were willing even to be persecuted for it, okay? They all had the same sense of rightness. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, and all had the same sense of rightness. None of them are persuaded by salary, uh, you know, we find them poor, we find them rich, we find them in between, but that's, that's really not a factor with them. They, they just simply stand for what they believe in right, is right. Okay, all of them have that. Next, a reason that they have come across and been so popular is that, that the majority of mankind who have read them through the centuries have found inner identification with the things that they say is right. Uh, through our experience with life, uh, we've looked out at the world and we've said, hey, Isaiah's right, Amos is right, uh, Jesus is right, the apostles are right, that, that if people actually loved one another, treated others the way they would have them to be, treat them, 
if they were honest, if they didn't murder, if they tried to overcome wrong with good, uh, if people were not so quick to fight and quicker to turn the extra cheek and to the other cheek and go the extra mile, this, this world would be a whole lot better place. If, uh, if men had one wife, uh, until death do they part, if, if men and women brought up their, had their children and brought them up, that we would do away with all kinds of problems. And so we've, we've found ourselves looking at the world, looking at ourselves and saying, hey, these guys are right. And so in the same sense, you might listen to a politician and vote for this guy as opposed to that one, because this guy says a lot of things that you inwardly identify with and believe are right. Well, I'm saying that these guys have got our vote as prophets that are special over and above others because of this high sense of morality and rightness that millions of people all through the century, and like I said, when we look at Isaiah, Isaiah is not an American. Isaiah is an Oriental. He's, he's from the Mideast. Uh, he's 2,700 years ago. You know, I don't, uh, there is, there is, and yet here he is, people all over the world of every language and every culture have read Isaiah and been impressed with this high sense of rightness and say, yes, hey, there's a little bit of difference between Isaiah and some of these others that claim to be prophets of God. All right, now, the, all of this is good that we've talked about, and there, there definitely is that inner sense. But then the fact that they have this tremendous sense of right and wrong would not in itself prove they were a prophet of God. I mean, because we've already said that right and wrong is something that we can ascertain of our own thinking and experience with life. In fact, when Jesus said uh, that the, to do good and uh, that do your good before men so that they may glorify the Father in heaven, there is the assumption there that people inwardly identify with what he's saying is right. Uh, when the Jews were told that they were to be a light to the nations, there is the assumption there that people could inwardly identify like Moses said in Deuteronomy 5 and say, hey, there's no nation that has a law that's as righteous as this. And so that there, there is that sense. So I'm saying that even though they stand, that's a great quality. It still would not improve they're, in, they're inspired by God. We'd have something very unique, but it's still a, a possibility from within the human realm itself as, as unique as it is. Okay, now, in addition to this, what God did, God knew that as he spoke to these people, that people had to be confident in their heart that, hey, the man is speaking as a prophet of God. And he anticipated this. So hold your place there again in Isaiah. And flip over here to uh, Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter. Okay, Deuteronomy uh, 18, and uh, let's see, uh, verse 15, and then verse 21 and 22. Christy, would you read that, please? Verse 15 of chapter 18, then read verse 21 and 22. 
When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and he, you shall not be afraid of him. Okay, so Moses said that after me, God will raise up prophets. Ultimately, this will be pointed out in the New Testament as having its end result in Jesus. But I believe Moses also in the context was preparing him for the fact that Joshua would come after him and there would be other prophets. Moses knew that he was going to die. And the people's concern is, where, who is going to be the prophet? So he says, God will raise up other prophets. Okay, He anticipates. Now, how are you going to know in your mind? Well, we've already noted that a prophet was one that stood up for what is right no matter what. In Isaiah 8 and verse 20, he made the statement concerning prophets in his day that to the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to that, there's no light in them. In other words, he's saying that, that God's prophets will not deviate from the law, but that's their, that's their guiding principle. Now, Isaiah 8 and verse 20. But notice here, he says, what if a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord and does not take place? A mark of a prophet of God is that when he said something about some event, that it would take place. If it did not, that would be a sign that he spoke it off the top of his own head, which means he may be right sometimes and wrong. When, when you and I speak about the future, sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. These guys would speak, and every time they would be right. And, and, and they, were, they were going to speak sometimes where the things that they would say would be the exact opposite of what you would think would happen based on the information that they were operating with at the time. Okay, now, what I'd like to do with Isaiah in, in, is to take a few examples. Now, remember last week, we pointed out that Isaiah made statements about a Messiah to come who would be a light to the world and who would be a sin offering for the world and would be a great servant of God and would lead others back to God and that we can look at the New Testament and see the fulfillment of that in Jesus. But we noted that at the time that Isaiah uttered that, those people believed it in faith based on things that he was uttering in his day that came to pass and proved to them that he was a prophet of God. And so let's turn to a few things that, that Isaiah said to the, that, that future generations would have the opportunity to follow up on. Turn over to Isaiah, the 13th chapter. Okay, now remember, we've identified Isaiah is writing between 740 and, and 700 or 690 B.C. Okay, now notice the statement here in verse 1. An oracle concerning Babylon that Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So here's something he says about Babylon. Okay, he speaks of nations coming together against Babylon. And in verse 6, he says, Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. In verse 9, the day of the Lord is coming. Okay? In verse 10, he uses the, uh, an idiom, a poetic metaphor of that day. The stars of heaven and their constellations would not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Uh, this was never taken literal. It was, a, it was an idiom, 
and it simply had reference to darkness and gloom and people being cast out of their high position based on the judgment day of God. Okay, in verse 13, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place. Again, an idiom uh, depicting the anger of God as he comes in judgment. Okay, in verse 17, I will stir up the, against them the Medes who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. In other words, you can't bribe them. They're, they're going to defeat them. Look at verse 19. Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in throughout all generations. No Arab will pinch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But desert creatures will lie there, and jackals will fill her houses. There, there the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Okay? Notice what he says. At the time that Isaiah utters this, and undown for several years, it's a very rich area at this particular time. Uh, this is the, one of the cradles of civilization uh, that archaeology attributes as a cradle even, even to the present day. And so here is Babylon, and Isaiah has predicted that Babylon will be destroyed. It will never be inhabited. It will never be rebuilt. But he even says who's going to do it. He says the Medes will be the vessels that God will use it. Okay, now flip on over to Isaiah 44. Jerusalem has been uh, defeated. The, the Jews have been carried captive. And Babylon is the strong country in the world. Okay? Now, note the words of prophecy here about the breaking up the defeat of Babylon and then the fact that the Jews would go back home and Jerusalem would be rebuilt again. And notice again, what, what, how, he, how it would take place. Beginning in verse, uh, let's see, uh, uh, Jack, would you read that starting with verse uh, uh, 25 on through uh, 45 and verse 6. Who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of designers who overthrows the learning of the wise, and turn it into nonsense. Who carries out the words of his servants, and fulfills the predictions of his messengers? Who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them? Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and I will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains, I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, 
who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you my name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. All right, now, let's put it all together and see what we've got. Isaiah has said that Babylon, the greatest, at this time here, the greatest country in the world, uh, this great city, that it will eventually be so defeated and destroyed that it will be comparable to Sodom and Gomorrah, and that it will never be rebuilt, never be inhabited again. He said an Arab won't even pitch his tent there. Okay? In this one here, in the latter, in, in chapter 44, he, he's already said he's going to use the Medes against it. We know that the Medo-Persians became a great empire, and he calls Cyrus by name. And he says, Cyrus, that you're going to be the one that goes in and takes Babylon, and you're going to do it without a fight. That I'll open the doors before you, you'll just simply walk in, and you'll take over. The, and, and I'm going to let everybody know that the God of Israel, that I am the true and only God. See, at this time, Babylon had defeated Israel. And so the Babylonians could say that, hey, our God is the true God. And so God has forecast the captivity of his own people. And then he has forecast the downfall of Babylon. And then he says that, you will, that Israel will go back home and rebuild the city, but Babylon I'll destroy all right, this is contrary to what all the evidence should, happen, should say happen at this time, that a great city will collapse, will be defeated, that it will be taken even without a fight, and that an insignificant people will go home and rebuild their city, and that this great city then will never be inhabited again. Okay, this book here is an archaeology book just simply uh, dealing with all of this from strictly an archaeological and historical standpoint, dealing with the history of the Mideast. And it's in chronological order, and uh, you can turn over here to Babylon and simply read uh, the, the, the event and what happened from just purely a historical standpoint. And it gives the, uh, the conquests uh, from, an, uh, from the archaeological discoveries it mentions the Cyrus Cylinder uh, that described coming in and what happened. It says, uh, the Cyrus Cylinder, a baked clay barrel about nine inches long, records the conquest of Babylon by Cyrus. And so on the Cyrus uh, Cylinder, an archaeological discovery, we have the conquest by Cyrus recorded. It says, despite the loss and breakage several of several lines, the main account is clear. Having set forth problems encountered by Babylonian priests in King Nebuchadnezzar, the text tells of Marduk seeking a righteous man, pronouncing the name Cyrus, and thus destined him to be ruler of the world. Babylon was taken without battle. Cyrus welcomed by the populace. By royal edict, captives were released and permitted to return to their homelands. Sanctuaries restored. Statutory and cultic implements returned to shrines. Then he goes on to say, much of what is related in the cylinder can be correlated with biblical accounts, Isaiah 44, 
through the 45 that we just read. Okay, here I'll pass this around, Steve, on that direction for the, the cylinder and the event. Now notice what happened. By the way, the, the Jews' secular historical record, separate from what we have here, record that on the event that in Babylon, the king was so corrupt and so ungodly, and, and he was party. Remember at the end of Daniel, how that the king is partying and they're drinking and carrying on, that he just simply wasn't somebody that was on top of it. He was disliked. He was disrespected by his own people. Notice the prophecy said that about the deep being dry, the water being dried up, that Cyrus the, came down to a dry riverbed, and coming down to a dry riverbed, the priest in Babylon actually opened the gates of the city. And so he just walked in and took over. And no fight, no anything. He walked in and took over. All right, when he walked in and took over, the Jewish priest met Cyrus and actually showed him the prediction of Isaiah, how that he had been called by name, even though he really didn't even know God, and that God had said that he would be the tool that he would use to, open, to defeat Babylon. He was so impressed by that that he passed the edict to send the Israelites home and not only let them go back and they rebuilt Jerusalem, but he actually made it such that they could have the materials and things like that to rebuild the temple itself. Okay, we've given one example there. That kind of thing happened a number of times. In other words, I'm saying that there are numerous prophecies by these prophets where they spoke of the rise and the fall of nations and cities and we can go to archaeology and read and see that it came about exactly that way. And this, this one, a very specific one in that the name itself was, was actually called. All right, now, it's because of predictions like this that came about that that is why that the Jews would reverence and respect Isaiah. And when we get down to the time of Jesus, they reverently believed that it was inspired of God, even though those, those prophecies of the Messiah had not even been fulfilled yet. It was because of things like that that had been fulfilled in detail. Now, I got one more prediction to look at in Isaiah. And then the book that we'll look at here is not written by a Christian or a Jew. This is written by uh, an unbeliever who is just simply looking at religious history. And I want to show you an example of how he handles a prediction uh, in the book of Isaiah. And in the process, we're going to note that the man actually acknowledges the historical parts of the prophecy itself. Okay, now, flip over here to Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37. When did uh, uh, Cyrus come into uh, to Babylon and take over? About 539. So about? About 539. Or about 100 years before that? Yeah. No, yeah, well, actually, or more. And I'm saying that... Years. Actually, the, let's, let's take Isaiah from the standpoint of even the most liberal scholar, okay? The conservative scholar would put all of Isaiah between 740 and 700, okay? The most liberal would give the first part of Isaiah, uh, say through about verse 39, as being uh, the, the Isaiah written at that time, and then he would come on down further with the rest of that material. But all, even the most liberal, is putting the material before the event itself. 
In other words, all acknowledge the historical event. Okay, now, to, to study the unity of Isaiah and that all of the book was written at that time is a whole study within itself. In fact, that's, a, you know, at least in, uh, to me, it was a very interesting study, just uh, that, that study within itself. But I'm saying suffice it to say we're dealing with a historical work where you can actually demonstrate that it, the material was written in advance. Now, as evidence, one evidence, to, to show you that the material was written in advance, for every effect, there's a cause. The question has to be answered. At the time Isaiah prophesied, like we've already noted in Jeremiah and all, and in Isaiah, there were, there were hundreds of prophets claiming to be a prophet of God. And they were telling the people exactly what they wanted to hear. They were well supported. Isaiah and the other prophets were despised. They weren't well liked. The people sure were not prejudiced on their behalf. What is it that caused those people that Isaiah was looking right in the face and calling them sinners, tell them they need to repent, tell them that they was going into captivity, tell them that they deserved everything they got if they didn't repent? What is it that caused them to, reverent, to come to reverence and respect and believe in Isaiah as a prophet of God and to have that reverence for it all the way down through the time of Christ even to the present time? The, the, uh, short of the events themselves. And I'm saying it was the fulfillment of those statements that caused the reverence and the respect for that book itself. Now, in this, in Isaiah 37, again, we're in a, a historical setting. The king of Assyria is Sennacherib, okay? Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. The king in Jerusalem is, is Hezekiah. Now, the Assyrians, like the Babylonians, had good historians themselves. And so the event that you read here in Isaiah 37, you can go to the Assyrians' records and to other historical sources and read also. In other words, at this time in history, Assyria is the great power of the world. And so Assyria has conquered the ten tribes, 721, 722, right in that area. Now they've conquered all the other countries around, Jerusalem, and now uh, King Sennacherib brings his army against Jerusalem. Okay, you can see in verse 31, uh, verse 1 of chapter 37, Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, that's Sennacherib now has, is, is wanting him to surrender, and he's going to take the city. Okay, that he sends for the prophet Isaiah, verse 2, okay, and he says, this is what what Hezekiah says, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace as when the children come to the point of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. Maybe the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore pray for the remnant that still survives. Okay, when King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says, Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the kings of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Okay, so Isaiah tells Sennacherib, don't you be afraid because God is going to deliver you, okay? In verse 14 through 20, you have Hezekiah's prayer to God. 
In verse 21, Isaiah speaks again. Then Isaiah, verse 21, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word the Lord has spoken, okay? He goes ahead and talks about how he's mocked Jerusalem and again makes the statement that he will deliver Jerusalem and that there would be no damage to come to it from Sennacherib, okay? In verse 35, verse 35, I will defend this city and save it for my sake, for the sake of David, my servant. Okay, then look at verse 36. An angel of the Lord went out and, and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And the people got up and the next morning. There were all dead bodies. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Mishra, his sons cut him down with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Aaron. Okay, and Esarhad and his son succeeded him as king. All right, now notice what the Isaiah, the record in Isaiah says. It says that Sennacherib, who has already conquered all the other countries, comes against Jerusalem, and he's got his great army encamped around it. Okay, he's besieged the city. Hezekiah is destroyed. He prays to God. He sends to Isaiah. Isaiah says that he will not come in the city that I'm going to, he's going to get a report and go home and his life will be taken and I'll deliver you from his army. Then you read that he lost 185,000 at night. Okay, now that's the biblical record. All right. The Assyrians kept a historical record of the same event. Okay, you can read, you can read about Sennacherib and his exploits and who he conquered and everything uh, in their records the same as you can in the biblical record. Now, it's interesting. We actually have a, an archaeological discovery where Sennacherib is boasting about this. And his statement is, I have Hezekiah pinned up like a bird in a cage. And, and the same type of mockery and boasting that you read in the Bible, you read in Sennacherib's own historical record. I mean, he was that type of person, and, and he's mocking and boasting. All right, now, here's what the Assyrians' historical record said. The Assyrians said that a plague hit their army, and they lost 185,000. Sennacherib went back home. His own sons took his life, and then Esarhaddon began to reign. So the Assyrian historian record said, now the Bible says an angel of the Lord killed the army. Well, obviously, nobody saw that. But I'm saying the Assyrian record says that a plague hit them and 185,000 died, that Sennacherib went home, he was killed, and Esarhaddon began to reign in his stead. Now that is in the Assyrian record. Okay, now, here is this book, Man's Religions, and he's looking at Judaism and Christianity and all the various religions of the world. And in the process of, of Judaism, he's dealing with the prophets. Okay, he says, and, and this man, remember, this is not a Jew, he's not a Christian, he's, not, he's strictly agnostic so far as religion goes, and he's looking at the events from a historical standpoint. I took this as a course when I was stationed in Okinawa while in the Marine Corps. The University of Maryland uh, offered courses over there, and I took several, and this is one of them. The, the, and this was the textbook used at that time by the University of Maryland. The southern kingdom, meanwhile, came in for its share of 
prophetic admonition. About 740 B.C., at the close of the reign of King Uzziah, a young man of a good family appeared on the streets of Jerusalem in a prophetic robe. His name was Isaiah. He had just an, had an experience of the reality of Yahweh, that's God, or Jehovah, that had moved him deeply, and he told of it in these words, and he describes Isaiah's call, the way Isaiah relates it. Conscience of his divine commission. Notice that there is no denial of Isaiah as a historical personage who is conscious of a divine mission. Now, he may deny that mission himself, but he recognizes Isaiah as a historical person who's conscious of this. Conscious of his divine commission, Isaiah remained active for nearly 40 years as a prophet of the people at large and a special advisor to the Judean kings. In a time of uncertainty, he stood unswervingly for trusting in the providence of God. He was the prophet of faith of confidence in God beyond doubt or shaking. He was forever warning the rulers of Jerusalem that the city's safety lay in ceasing to make leagues with the other nations and relying only on trusting in Yahweh or God. Your strength, he said, is, is quite faith. In giving advice to Judah's kings, this was his constant declaration. Thus, now he goes and he, he takes the two historical records, the Bible and the Assyrian record. When the northern kingdom had been destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and the Assyrians were camped before Jerusalem under the mighty general Sennacherib, he sent panic-stricken King Hezekiah, who besought him to call upon Yahweh, assurances that the city would not be taken. Now notice the comment of this guy. His prophecy was wondrously fulfilled. The Assyrians suddenly raised the, raised the siege. All right, notice he acknowledges historically that the prophecy was fulfilled, that the Syrians raised the siege, and that they were not taken. All right, he does that because he has not just the Jewish record, he has the Assyrian record too. And see, just as, as in a court of law, we operate on the principle of, of facts are determined on the basis of two or three witnesses. Well, historians do the same thing. When a historian reads something in one account, he does not accept that as truth. He accepts it as possible truth, but not truth. Before a historian will accept something as truth, he has to read collaborating accounts. And, and the more biased or unbiased, you know, the better. In other words, if you can find somebody who would be biased against this person, but who actually records the same thing, that is considered the absolute top kind of evidence from a, historic, from a historian standpoint. It'd be just like if I was on trial and my enemy is given a testimony that collaborates what I'm saying. That would be more valuable to you than if my friend gave it. And so when he reads an account by the Assyrians, talking about their own defeat and all, and it, it parallels what he has with the Jewish account, that's very impressive to him. All right, but then as he records that, there's a little asterisk, okay, a little asterisk. And it refers you down to the bottom of the page and says, according to tradition, a plague struck them. But there is evidence that Sennacherib accepted a heavy ransom to withdraw his forces. Okay? Here's what he's dealing with. Notice how he explains that. He says that, that according to tradition, a plague hit them. But there is evidence, he doesn't give you that evidence. There is evidence that he accepted a bribe and removed his forces. Okay? When you go back and look at what he's actually dealing with, the facts are the biblical account that we just read and the Assyrian account. And the Assyrian account says that a plague hit his army and destroyed it. Now that's the Assyrian's own account, and it's unfavorable to them. 
And it says a plague hit the army. He raised the siege. He went back out and he was killed. All right. Where does he come up with the idea that they took a bribe? There have been times when people did take bribes. There have been times in history when a king would bring an army against somebody and would be offered a bribe of we'll pay you so much taxes, we'll give you all the gold from the temple, etc., and he would lift the siege and go back home. Okay? In this case, he has no evidence of that whatsoever other than the fact that that type of thing has happened. His only evidence is what the Assyrians say, and it's to their detriment, and what the Jews say. And so he puts that in the record, but then puts the asterisk down there at the bottom. All right, now, I point that out only to say that this is not a work of a Christian or a Jew. This is an unbeliever. And, and I'm showing you that we're dealing with history here that you can go back and study. And that these people that the Jews interacted with, the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Babylonians, they had historians too. And so you can read the account here, you can go back and read their account, and you can compare the records. And time and time again, we have these prophets making statements that seem to be contrary to what the facts would demand, and yet they're fulfilled. All right? Evidence of this, not just that we can date the book and all, but I'm saying an evidence that's always been there is, again, your, your, your principle that anytime you're dealing with something you haven't seen or experienced, one of the best principles that we operate with is the cause and effect principle. And, and we do that when we're solving crimes. We're always looking at a cause-effect. You do it in science. Science operates entirely on cause and effect. In the same vein, we ask the question. Isaiah, at the time he lived, was not popular with the majority of the Jews because he was constantly condemning them of sin. He was constantly rebuking them. He was constantly telling them that the gods that they were being led astray to were false gods and idols and, and all their own records outside the Bible record he went to his death in a very violent way during the time of Manasseh, who was an ungodly king right after Hezekiah. So he was not popular because he was always condemning them. The question becomes, what caused those people after the death of Isaiah to take his book and to reverence it and respect it and to meticulously copy it and believe without any doubt in their mind that he was a prophet of God because it did not feel that way when he was alive and walking among them. Okay? I'm saying there's no way to explain that except on the basis of the fact that everything that he said about the things that was going to happen to them in their relationship with other countries came about exactly the way it said. Okay? So these are two examples. There's others that we could use. Okay, let's go back to our initial premise and we'll... We'll close for tonight. The, the question we ask as we're studying Isaiah, and he claims to be a prophet of God, but we said the fact that he claims to be a prophet, nobody should believe anything because somebody claims it, okay? Everybody claims their car is the best car. Everybody claims that their anything is the best anything. There have been prophets all through the centuries that claim to be inspired of God, and they've taught a multitude of different things, Okay. We looked at these prophets for unique characteristics. What is there about them that was different than anybody in all of history we can study for? The first thing we noted is this very high sense of right and wrong. 
a sense that we find ourselves inwardly agreeing with. When we read what they say is right, we find ourselves saying, yes, the world would be a better place if everybody would live like that. I can see that all the problems in the world are caused because we don't. So there's been that very high sense of right and wrong. But there's been other people that had a high sense of right and wrong. Uh, Confucius had a high sense of right and wrong. Uh, Plato had it was an idealistic individual with maybe not a real high sense, but a, but at least a developed sense of right and wrong. Okay, but they had more than just a high sense of right and wrong. They had such a desire for what was right that they would not compromise, no matter who they was talking to. They would go to their death before they would back away. It, it didn't matter whether the king favored them or didn't favor them. It didn't matter whether the majority accepted them or didn't accept them. What they went by was this very high sense of right and wrong, okay? And they were willing to be persecuted. They're, they're not controlled by money, okay? That money does not alter their position at all. Whatever they say has nothing to do with their salary or support or anything of that nature. So this high sense of rightness, no concern about money as a, as a motivating factor, no concern about what other people are going to think about it, just the rightness itself, makes them extremely unique. But then there was another quality. There was these people with this high sense of rightness. And by the way, if there is any lying to the prophecy, we've got a very interesting paradox here. Because, and I'm saying, when these people claim to be speakers of God and claim to utter these prophets, if they're lying, then we have this unique paradox of the people with the highest sense of rightness that we've ever been introduced to in history are willful liars. And that doesn't make sense. But what we find is that when they utter these statements, every time to the extent that we can examine them, they're speaking about Babylon or Assyria or, Syria or Edom or Israel. And remember, when they speak about it, they don't favor Israel. They constantly condemn Israel as sinners. They send Israel into captivity. They defeat the kings of Israel in their prophecies and all. They don't favor Israel at all. When they speak of a Messiah, they're not telling people what they want to hear. They're telling them what they don't want to hear. The, the Jew wanted a Messiah who was nationalistic, who thought that the Jews were better than anybody else, and who was going to reign in Israel. That's what the Jews wanted. But the reason they killed Jesus is because Jesus was what Isaiah said he was going to be. He was a light to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He, he didn't believe that anybody was better than anybody else. He had a sense of right and wrongness that he didn't care where the chips fell. He condemned the religious leaders of the Jews as hypocrites. He, he, he emphasized that his kingdom was a worldwide thing that would be based on the principles of love and right and wrong. That that was, that, that was the, and, and anybody anywhere on the face of the earth that, that loved and believed that would be a citizen of his kingdom. And then they would be the ones that would recognize him. So I'm saying that, that Isaiah then makes these predictions about countries. He makes predictions about a Messiah. The Messiah came about exactly as he said. The predictions about countries came about that way. And we find that sense of rightness as being one that we inwardly identify with. And then we take Isaiah and we put him with all the other prophets and we find this same message. In other words, all of them with this same message and, and other prophets in their predictions would say things also about Babylon and also about Assyria and also about Jesus and we can simply take them and blend them in with what Isaiah said and they all fit together like a glove 
and all of it without exception comes about exactly in that way. Okay, and another thing, unlike uh, a typical thing, a book of religion, I know that uh, back when I first started to study the Bible, and I come from a background of skepticism, the impressive thing to me was that I could study this as a historical document, and I could go back and make comparisons and look at other historical records. It wasn't a matter of just somebody stating something, and then you're left to accept it or reject it, but it, it's written, it, it's, it takes place in the arena of history itself. Okay, anybody with any uh, comments or about anything we've covered or anything you'd like to add to it? Questions? In comparison yeah. to this, one time you said the like the Book of Mormon, mm -hmm. you say that when they when people from that group talk to you, they say, Well, if you'll read this book and pray about right. it, then you'll come to know that it's true. Right. And I got a Book of Mormon and in the introduction it actually makes that kind of statement. You know, if you'll read it and pray. The way uh, Mark I had a I've had several studies, you know, with the uh, Mormons. And the, the one that probably I, that involved me the most was one in Georgia when I studied with several of their high officials. They had, you know, the two that comes around, I studied with them, and then it looked like that I was reaching the young one. And so they sent out a higher one, and then they set me up with some other president that was supposed to study with me and all. And what I did in the study, I told them, I said, I, I don't believe the Bible just because it claims to be inspired. And I don't believe it just because it's been handed to me. And I, and I told them the kind of evidences that caused me to place my faith in it. And then I asked them, I says, now what I would like for you to do for me, and I says, I'll let you do all the talking. I want you to take the Book of Mormon and present those same kind of evidences. I want you to show me some prophecies that I can verify historically was written in advance and actually took place. I want you to show me this same sense of rightness and, and things like that and, and this same sense of unity and all like that. Well, the answer I got is exactly that, that if I were sincere, in other words, I put you in a position where it's, uh, it's sort of like the, the faith healer. You know, he can't lose because if, if you don't get healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. And so they, they say, you know, if you've got enough faith, it works. If, it, if you don't have enough faith, it don't work. So, it, you know, there's no way you can win in a situation like that. And in the same vein, you read it and pray, if you're sincere, you'll know it's true. Well, obviously, if you read it and come to the conclusion it's not true, it's because you're insincere. But I'm saying that that's, that, is, that is not the, the message, you know, of the Bible. It actually challenges somebody to examine the facts and, and to make their decision based on that. And the, again, the uh, sense of rightness, the, the, the older I got over the years, I think the more I appreciate that thing of rightness. When you look at other books, uh, uh, for example, uh, Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet, they talk about his persecution and, and his being put to death, but what they need to talk about is why he was persecuted. And he was persecuted for promoting polygamy. And, and Joseph Smith was anything but a moral individual, anything but a moral individual. Uh, Brigham Young was anything but an individual that didn't care about money. Uh, Brigham Young died a multi-millionaire based on the contributions of, of those people. Joseph Smith, uh, we can, the, if, if memory is serving me correctly, we're talking somewhere around 27 wives or so that he was attached to. Uh, Mohammed, uh, 
in his uh, said that you could have four wives, you know, if you could support them, but he had nine himself. You know, that's a little bit what Muhammad said is a little bit different and than what Jesus said about the, the situation and even the reasons he gave for the toleration, you know, for a period of time in the, in the history of man. Uh, when you look at uh, that religion, you see very little in the way of mercy. I mean, you steal something, cut your hand off. And that's, that's it, not a, not a whole lot of mercy uh, in, that, in that system. And I, I think that, uh, and, you, and you see a group that is willing to war and fight in order to spread you know, what they actually believe. But that high sense of rightness uh, that I can identify inwardly, I just haven't run into it anywhere else. I, uh, you know, I, they, just not at all. The area of Babylon still deserted and unlived in? Yes. The Babylon sits right at the head of the Euphrates River, and it today, that area where old Babylon was, is just a place for archaeologists to study, and that's it. The Arabs do not pitch their tent there. It's inherited by desert animals. But yeah, it's, it, it's exactly that way. Uh, and and that's, that, that, again, is interesting. Um, there are other places uh, we mentioned last week that like the Bible, for example, uh, a prophet uh, uh, Isaiah, and I think we studied on this last week in one of the examples, he said that Tyre would be totally destroyed, and yet Sidon would be uh, conquered and punished, but yet would continue to live, exist in a humiliated state. Tyre was the great city. Sidon was already in deterioration when Isaiah uttered that prophecy. Uh, Tyre was completely and totally destroyed. Sidon exists to this day in just a humiliated state. But the, I don't know of a single solitary country that the prophets dealt with, but that you can go to history and archaeology today and find them in exactly that same. It was prophesied that Edom, that God would wash it like a basin, that he would wipe it out of existence. That's exactly what happened. Uh, for years, historians debated over the exact place of the existence of, of Edom, uh, other than just simply know it was in the Mount Seir area. Uh, and then the, the same is true of like Jerusalem, uh, when not only prophesying that it would fall, but that the, the falling would be for a period of 70 years, and they would come back and rebuild and everything like that, you know. And then when Jesus prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, well, it hasn't been rebuilt yet. You know, and that the Jews would be scattered and things of that nature, that all of it. But there is, there's not a single thing that is called prophecy in the Bible that you could point to and say, hey, that didn't happen. You, you maybe can try to explain it away and say, well, I can see it happen, but I believe such and such. You know, just like uh, I believe that it was written after the event and redacted and made to appear as prophecy. You could say that, you know, and then we'd have to get into the evidence on that matter. But to, to actually go to something and say, hey, this is a lie, it just didn't happen, I don't uh, know that, uh, that anybody could on any point. And that's what has so fascinated, you know, scholars all through the years. That's why people that were, have been atheists and infidels through just simply studying and examining the book material, you know, have, have become believers. And, I have a question for 
about uh, how many years is God creating the heaven and the earth and that's, Okay, that's a good question, Lee. The, sometimes, uh, sometimes people try to make the Bible say something it does not say. Like they argue about thousands of years or a whole lot of years or whatnot. In the Bible, it just simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it does not say when the beginning was. Okay? Religious people, in the, uh, 50, say in the 1500s, there was a man by the name of Bishop Usher in the Catholic Church. And through his own personal study and his own personal theories, he came to the conclusion that it was 4004 B.C. Okay? And then... Uh, they began to put that in the Bibles after it was translated. But that was not in the Bible. Never was. That was just Bishop Usher. And he was operating on the basis of information that he had in the 1500s that we now know is faulty. In other words, I don't know of anybody today that, uh, for example, I believe in, the ins in God and in inspiration of the Bible, and I believe the earth is older than any 6,000 years. That, um, and that man has been here for longer than 6,000. And so the Bible really doesn't say that whether the earth has, has been here for several million years or thousands of years, that it, it just simply doesn't say. It, uh, in Genesis, it does not attempt to give a scientific account of what happened. It just establishes one thing, that in the beginning God created it, you know, and then, and then formed it in the way that we have, you know, in, in, at present time. But, uh, you know, that whatever happens in the way of time is theory, whether it's religion or science. Now, having said that, let me say this. What the scientists say about time, you know, and going back, is sometimes very biased. You know what I mean by biased? Uh, prejudiced. They, they have a reason for wanting. All right. If a scientist is not a believer in God, then he believes organic evolution, that things happen by chance and evolve, okay? The only way that can possibly be so is to have billions of years. So he has to have it. And so I'm saying, when the scientist goes back and he gets his billions of years, it's not because he can prove it, it's because he has to have it to believe his theory, okay? The all dating, like whatever method is used to date, uh, carb, the carbon-14 method, whatever is used today, all of it is based on the theory of uniformitarianism. Okay, do you relate to what I'm saying with uniformitarianism? Yeah. Okay, the the belief that things have always been as they are now, because if they have not, then you just can't take the dating process and keep going back. All right, if there has ever been a catastrophe where it changed things then your dating is only accurate to the catastrophe. Well, the interesting thing to me is that although all their dating is based on the theory of uniformitarianism, the majority of scientists now all believe in a great catastrophe happened several times in our history. Like, for example, we, we believe there was an ice age. Well, obviously, it was different than it is now. Something had to cause that, and something had to cause it to change. Uh, we have found skeletons of... of reptiles in northern climates where they don't even live. In other words, evidence that it, at one time that climate was more moderated. Uh, we found uh, animals uh, like great mammoths that were frozen with the food still in their mouth. 
they were instantaneously frozen. Well, obviously something had to cause that. There is evidence that the whole earth was at one time covered with water. That ancient histories in every culture go back to a time of a great flood and, uh, and then a righteous man and his family that was delivered. Uh, there is no history on the face of the earth, but that there, there at some time will go back to this thing. That's evidence that the earth was covered by water. From a scientific standpoint, they've proven that all the land that we have now was at one time underwater. Like on our highest mountains, we, we find shells of fish. Uh, I've got a rock downstairs that was taken from a, the highest point around Huntsville, which is 2,500 feet above sea level, the, the mountain area, and it's got fish shells in it. Well, obviously it was covered by water. And, and we've got fish shells and all that have been found in desert areas, evidence that they were covered by water at one time. By the same token, we know that some of the bottom of the ocean were at one time above. And, and we can look at uh, our geological scales, and the evidence is at one time that South America and Africa were connected together. So I'm saying that there have been great catastrophes. There's evidence that the wor world was covered by water, so that when we, when we take a dating method and we use carbon-14 or whatever we do, it's only accurate up to the catastrophe. Because then before the catastrophe, we can only speculate how things was because the earth was different. So I'm saying that when they say 5 billion years and 10 billion years or 3 billions, that is just absolutely guessing that there is, that it's own, they know themselves that they're only accurate back to a great catastrophe. And then after then, they, they don't know. But the reason they use that time is because in order for evolution to be true, they have to have that. Uh, another question, I see someone have a long life, about 900 years old. Right, right.